Are you ready to move with God? What does it look like to move with God? What it looks like is something like Abraham getting up out of his father's house and going to the place that God would show him, journeying to the promised land even though he didn't know where he was going. He wasn't moving out of selfish ambition. He had no clue where he was going, but he was moving with God. That's kind of what it looks like leaving everything you know behind and going to a place that only God knows, trusting the Lord to be the one who directs your future rather than trying to direct it yourself. It looks something like that. Or it looks like Moses standing at the burning bush hearing God say, go back to Egypt, which was the place that he had just recently escaped from. Well, it had been 40 years, but you never want to go back to the place that you were trying to get out of. But in order for Moses to move with God, he had to leave the comfortable place and go back to the dangerous place. And not only did God say, go back to Egypt, but he said, go stand before Pharaoh, the one who was trying to kill you 40 years ago, the reason why you ran away to get away from Pharaoh. Leave the comfortable place and go to the uncomfortable place and stand before the dangerous one and give him a message from me. That's what moving with God looked like for guy like Moses. Moving with God uh, for a guy named Daniel simply meant refusing to change his daily habit of praying in the same place and at the same time, three times a, a day. Even though they told him that if you practice your daily prayer habit one more day, we're going to throw you in a lion's den and you're going to be torn to pieces. In order for Daniel to move with God, he had to move back to the place of prayer on a daily basis and continue his habit of seeking God in the same place and at the same time. That's what it looked like for Daniel. To move with God, he had to move into the lion's den. Or for the three Hebrew boys, moving with God meant being willing to move into the fiery furnace. For Peter, moving with God meant being willing to step out of the boat onto the waters and take a walk with Jesus on the water, trusting that Jesus was the one who was going to support his weight, not the waves. Moving with God for Paul looked like being willing to become the first Christian missionary, being willing to defy the tradition of his past because he met Jesus, and when he met Jesus, he discovered that everything that he had believed and everything he had taught was completely wrong. He had been moving in the tradition of his elders, but now he had to move with God, and it meant that he had to turn around and move in the opposite direction that he had been moving all of his life. We know when we look at the Scriptures not only what it looks like to move with God, but we know the reward for moving with God. That because Moses was willing to move with God into the dangerous, uncomfortable place, Moses was blessed to see miracles that no one else had ever seen before him or after. He was blessed to see ten plagues come on Egypt. He was blessed to see the, the, the waters of the Red Sea part before him and the people of God. He was blessed to see the fire by night and the cloud by day. He was blessed to see the glory of God on Mount Sinai, all because he was willing to move with God. You see, so often we look at characters in Scripture and we say, God blessed them because they were holier, because they were more righteous, because they had a deeper relationship with God, because they spent more time in prayer, because they had it all together or because God just chose them somehow and made them higher than us. But in actuality, everyone in Scripture who saw great things, who encountered great things, God encountered them in such a way for one reason and one reason alone, because they were willing to move with God. 
And I say to you by the word of the Lord that if you're willing to move with God, you're going to see stuff in 2020 that you've never seen before. Stuff that you never anticipated that God could do in your life or through your life simply because you were willing to move with God. Now, I think a lot of people are willing to move with God. I think a lot of believers, I think, matter of fact, everyone, if you, matter of fact, even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you would say, man, if he would appear to me, I'd move with him. Like if he could show me his glory, if he would somehow facilitate the movement, I would go. I just lack the evidence. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you would say, yeah, I'm willing to move with him. I just got to know where he's going. My problem is I don't know where he's moving or how he's moving. I'm always confused about what his will is and which direction he's leading me in. If he would simply make his will clear to me, I'm willing to move with him. I want to be the Abraham that leaves his father's house and goes to the promised land. I just need to hear him say, get out of your father's house and go to the place I'll show you. I want to be the Moses that stands before Pharaoh, but I need the burning bush. And I simply need to hear him say, go back to Egypt and stand before Pharaoh. I would love to be the Daniel who goes to the lion's den, but I need him to show me what I'm supposed to do. I'd be happy to be any of these characters if God would just show up, if he would just somehow speak to me. If, and, and I feel stuck in my spiritual life because I don't know what God is saying or where he's leading. I don't know how I'm called to move with him this year. I think a lot of people feel stuck in their spiritual lives and unable to discern how to take the next step. And today I want to talk to you about what it means to get unstuck and what God is able to do to get you unstuck, but what step you need to take in order to get yourself unstuck. And the step that you need to take that I want to talk to you today about is moving beyond the Bible study. You need to be willing to take a step beyond the Bible study if you're going to be able to move with God. Now, what I mean by that is we are in a culture, if you look at the Christian culture of our day and age, the Christian culture is very, very strongly word-driven. Christians love good sermons. 83% of church members say that they stay at their church because of the preaching of their pastor. 83%. And if you look at the biggest churches in America, what has grown those churches is typically the preaching of the pastor. Matter of fact, podcasts make it possible for you to get the preaching of the pastor without even going to his church. Do you know that we have Hundreds of people who attend Living Hope on a weekly basis between two campuses. But we have tens of thousands of people around the world who listen to our podcast. We are a word-centered culture. We love the Bible study. We love the sermon. And often we say, man, that was a good word. I got to take that home and I got to listen to it again. Our problem is we don't know how to go beyond the sermon. We don't know what's on the, we know how to say amen to it. We know how to agree to it, but we don't know how to press beyond it into the reality to which the sermon attests. And today I want to talk to you about going beyond the Bible study. Now I'm going to read to you one verse, maybe two, if you're lucky, out of Luke chapter 24, and we're going to talk about one of my 
favorite passages of Scripture in Luke 24. This is Luke 24, verse 28. I'm going to read verses 28 and 29. You're lucky. Then they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further, farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Father, speak to us today by the power of your word and spirit. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Resurrection Day here in Luke 24. Jesus is newly resurrected from the dead, and there's a group of women who go to the tomb early in the morning with spices to anoint his body, to preserve his body, to minister to the dead body of Christ. But when they get to the tomb, they find the stone rolled away, and there's no body in the tomb. No body. They get to the tomb, and there's no body. This is the best nobody that you could ever hope to experience. The nobody of the tomb of Jesus. Go to the tomb of Muhammad, and his followers will say, there he lies. Go to the tomb of Buddha, and his followers will say, there he lies. Go to the tomb of Confucius, and his followers will say, there he lies. But go to the tomb of Jesus and his followers will say, there he lay. Why seek ye the living among the dead? There's no body. And as they're trying to figure out what happened at first, they assume that his body has been stolen. But while they're trying to figure out what happened, there's two men in white garments who appear to these women and say to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen just as he said. And suddenly they remember what he said to them, that he was going to be put to death, but that he would arise from the dead on the third day. And the angels tell the women to go back and tell his brothers. And these women become the first preachers of the resurrection of Jesus. The first proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus were a group of women who were commissioned by angelic visitation. Now, there's a strong group of people in the body of Christ in contemporary Christianity who would have told those women to be quiet because it's not your place to preach. But yet God himself sent those women to be proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How many know that God calls women just like he calls men, that in Christ there is neither male nor female? And in this day and time, God is raising up women to be voices, prophetic voices in the body of Christ that are going to call us to a new level of intimacy with Jesus Christ. Amen. These women, they go back to the apostles. These women go back to the apostles, and they preach the resurrection. And in verse 11 of Luke 24, the scripture says, but their words seemed to them like idle tales. Another translation says their words seemed to them like nonsense, and they did not believe them. These women are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the very followers of Jesus say that their words sound like nonsense 
and they do not believe them. Keep that in your mind, because that's an important point. Two verses later, in verse 13, two of these disciples, who are unnamed, decide, we are out of here. And so they leave Jerusalem, and they're on a seven-mile walk to the city of Emmaus. And while they walk, they talk. And what is it that they talk about? The failure of Jesus. How they thought that he was going to be somebody, but he turned out to be nobody. You see, they got a different kind of nobody in their vocabulary. The women went to the tomb and found nobody. But these two disciples are on the road and they think Jesus is a nobody. They're talking about how he was not who he claimed to be and he did not do what he claimed to do and he did not fulfill what they thought he would fulfill and so because of that, I do not have what I thought I would have. There's too many believers who are conversing about the failure of Jesus in their lives. And it always starts with me not having what I thought I would have and he didn't do for me what I thought he would do for me and he didn't give me what I thought he would give me and, and therefore God has failed and Jesus has failed to be who he said he was. I thought he said he was Alpha and Omega. I thought he said he was my provider. I, I thought he said he was my rock. I thought he said he would never leave me and he would never forsake me. Why am I experiencing this if he is who he said he was? And in the midst of this discussion, Jesus himself comes and walks with them on the road. Interesting that they're walking away from the will of God and God is walking with them. Away from his own will. They're walking away from Jerusalem, which is the place of their calling, and Jesus is walking with them away from their own calling. Hold on a second. Why is God walking with wayward disciples who are walking away? Because I, I, me, I'll only walk with you if you're walking towards the will of God. If you start walking away, I'm not walking anywhere with you. Because somebody might see me and think I'm backslidden. But Jesus is willing to walk with wayward disciples in the opposite direction of the will of God. And what's interesting is in actuality, they are walking away from Jesus, and Jesus is walking with them away from himself. <laughs> we are walking away from Jesus, and Jesus is like, for real, let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Which is crazy when you think about the grace of God. Go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, you guys got to get out of my garden. He puts them out, and then he walks out the door and closes it behind himself, and he goes, okay, I'm here with you. God puts them out the garden. He puts himself out too. Or he says to Israel in the wilderness, oh, you don't believe me? Fine, you're not going to the promised land. You guys are going to wander around this desert for 40 years. And then, they, and then God goes, okay, let's go. I'm wandering with you. That God, whatever he does to us, he does to himself. That's why the discipline of the Lord can be trusted because he does not discipline us without disciplining himself. He says, if you're going to walk away, I'm going to walk away with you. No problem. Let's go. And what does he do? The opposite of what I would have done. I would have been on the road with him the whole time going, you morons. <laughs> you didn't hear a word I said for three years. Look, it's me. 
But instead, Jesus does not allow them to recognize him. He was hidden from their eyes. His identity was hidden from their eyes. Instead, Jesus joins them in their own conversation. He says, what are you guys talking about? First of all, he says, he says, what are you talking about? And this is verse 17. It says, they stopped looking down and their face, their faces look sad. Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they go, sad, downcast. There was no moment in history in which it was less appropriate to be sad than that moment. The very day of the resurrection, and you got discouraged believers. The very moment God has worked the greatest miracle in the history of creation from that day until this, there will never be a greater miracle than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But because they're ignorant of what God did this morning, they're sad this afternoon. So often you are sad this afternoon because you're ignorant of what God has done this morning. You need to stop every time you feel downcast and say, you know what? Maybe I'm ignorant of something that God has already done. Let me, let me hesitate. We should be very hesitant to be discouraged. So, you know, I feel, I'm feeling discouragement coming on, but I'm going to put a pin on that. <laughs> Let's put a pin on that because I don't know what God has done that I'm just not aware of. We need to, instead of praying for, about our problems, we need to stop and start praying, God, could you open my eyes to what you've already done that I can't see? What are you guys talking about? Oh, we're talking about this Jesus guy. Really? Tell me about him. Are you a stranger to these parts? They think God is ignorant. So did the disciples on the boat. Lord, don't you care that we perish? We always think God is ignorant. Don't we spend the first part of our prayers just bringing God up to speed? God, let me tell you what's going on in my life, because obviously you don't know. And we don't realize that it's fake news. It's, it's fake news. It's both CNN and Fox. It's all fake news. And Jesus listens to their fake news. Yeah, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, supposed to be. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but they killed him. And then our women started talking some nonsense about him being raised from the dead. And now Jesus can't handle it anymore. Oh, foolish ones, he says. And I don't think he said it gently. <laughs> when we hear it in the kingdom, oh, foolish ones. I think he said, you fools! <laughs> Why are you so foolish? And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said. What is that, verse 27? 25, why are you so foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said? In other words, what they said sounded like Jesus, sounded to Jesus as nonsense. The women told them about the resurrection, it sounded like nonsense to them. They're talking to Jesus about his own failure, and it sounded to him like nonsense. So often our prayers sound like nonsense to God. 
are complaining sessions to sound to God like utter nonsense. Why are you so foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? The problem is we're just slow of heart. Your heart is just slow. God spoke it thousands of years ago. You heard it tens of years ago. And your heart is just slow. I think I might believe it one day. Today? No, not yet. Your heart is just like a sloth. Why are you so slow of heart? Now, this is the part that gets me. Why are you so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said? Notice he doesn't say, why didn't you believe the women? He goes back further. I'll tell you why you didn't believe the women, because you didn't believe the prophets. See, sometimes I get discouraged. I'm like, I preach a sermon on encouragement, and I guarantee you somebody's going to come to me at the end of that very service and go, I'm so discouraged. You didn't believe a word I said. I just wasted my breath. You know, last night we had some people over. They spent the night, and the plan was for them to sleep in my daughter's room. But I went upstairs and looked at her room, and it, it was a storm. And so I said, now, we're not putting them here. And so I got another room ready. But meanwhile, my daughter was cleaning her room, and it wasn't until she finished cleaning her room that she realized that I was putting them in another room. And so she made a sign and put it on the front of her door, went in her room and closed the door. And I went and the sign said, I did all this for nothing. <laughs> That's how I feel when I stand here and I just pour out my, my soul to you for 45 minutes. And I say, I talk about, you know, encouragement. Somebody comes to me right after the service. I'm so discouraged. I di I'm just going to wear a sign. I did this for nothing. <laughs> Nobody heard me. Nobody believed. But actually, in actuality, that's not even what it's about. If you don't believe the prophets, you're not going to believe me. If you don't believe what's written in the Bible, it doesn't matter who the preacher is. We can get T.D. Jakes up here. You won't believe him either. You won't believe Moses and Elijah. You're not going to believe Benjamin. <laughs> the other side of it is if you do believe what the prophet said, it's easy for you to believe me if I'm telling you what they said, because that's all the preacher does is tell you what they said. That's preaching in a nutshell is this is what the Bible says. Please believe it. It's true. Please believe it. But so often you're sitting in your seats. It just sounds like nonsense. And so Jesus, he's walking with these two away from the will of God, away from their calling, and even away from himself, which, try that on for size. And he says, your problem is that you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. And then beginning with Moses, he takes them all the way through the Bible and shows them everything that was written about him in the Old Covenant. There's the Bible st study. There's the sermon. This is their T.D. Jakes moment. This is the moment they got the podcast. They're listening to it. 
They're sitting in Jesus Sunday morning service and their hearts are waking up and they're saying, amen. Ooh, that was a good work. Ooh, that was Jesus. Mm, my God, that was great. Mm. They were about to take an offering for him. Their hearts are burning within in them as they're walking on the road. And then they get to Emmaus and they go, okay, this is our stop right here. And he says, it was nice talking with you fellas. I'll see you later. And he starts to continue. And that is the moment where most of us say, whoo, thanks for that good word, Jesus. See you later. But not these two. These two were hungering for something beyond the Bible study. These two understood that the word set them up for something more, something greater. And they weren't going to stop until they got that something more, that something greater. It wasn't enough for them to go home and review their notes from the Bible study. It wasn't enough for them to take their recording of the podcast and listen to it over and over again to make sure they got the word. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something beyond that. There's something more than that. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's something more than that. Jesus said, service is over. Thank you all for coming to the house of the Lord today. Have a great week. And he closed the service with a benediction and tried to walk off. And it says, but they constrained him. They constrained him. No, it can't be over yet. You've given us the Bible study, but we sense that there's something more. You see, if you're going to get free to move with God in 2020, you're going to have to learn how to constrain him. You're going to have to learn that getting the word is great, but there's something on the other side of the word that you only get when you make a decision. I'm going to constrain him. I'm going to reach out my hand and grab him by the arm and say, no, you're not leaving yet. I haven't gotten everything that you have to give me yet. The Bible study was great, but now I need reality. Now I need your living presence. Now I need your power. Now I need you to make it real on the inside of my heart. They constrained him and they said, abide with us. Which is reminiscent of John 15 when Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's interesting. We love the part about my words abide in you because all I got to do is memorize some scripture. I just need the Bible study. But he said, no, 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 no. You have to abide in me and then my words have to abide in you. You see, it's not enough for his words to abide in you. You have to abide in him. They already had the words abiding in them, but they said, no, we need more than the words. We need you. We need more than a good sermon. We need a good Jesus. We need you. They constrained him and said, abide with us. Come into the house with us. Don't just walk on the road with us, but come into the house with us. And they constrained him saying, abide with us. We're hungry for your presence, your, your presence dwelling with us. Every place in the Gospels where when anyone asked Jesus to come, he came. Everywhere in the Gospels. And everywhere in the Gospels, when anyone asked Jesus to leave, he left. If you ask him to come, he'll come. 
And if you ask him to leave, he'll leave. These two asked him to come. And they opened up the door and they invited him in. And when he came in, he sat at the table with them. And he said, now that you've invited me in, I've got something for you that's beyond the Bible study. You got any bread? They said, yeah, we got a fresh loaf right here, he said. Let me see that. They handed him the loaf. He said, I need you to sit down for this. This is going to blow your minds. Look into my eyes. They looked into his eyes. And he took the bread. He said, watch this. Blessed are you, O Lord, who brings forth bread. And the moment the bread broke, their eyes were opened. And they saw, it's Jesus. The moment the bread broke, they were taken back to the feeding of the 5,000 when he broke it and blessed it and multiplied it and gave it. They said, it's the same Jesus who broke the bread. It's the same Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. If you feed on me, you'll never die. And the moment their eyes were opened and they recognized him, he vanished. And they looked at each other and said, did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us on the road and as he opened the scriptures to us? In other words, they said, of course it's him. Of course, of course he's alive. Of course death couldn't keep him in the ground. Of course he didn't fail. Of course he is who he said he is. Of course he did what he said he would do. Of course he's still with us. You see, when you come into the presence of God, all of the truths of Scripture simply make sense that they're actually real and they're actually true and they actually apply to you. But when you're walking in unbelief and in the flesh, it all sounds like nonsense to you. But when you come into the inner court and you invite Jesus to come in and when he sits at the table and breaks the bread with you, your eyes are open and all of a sudden you see that it's been true all the time. Of course. Of course he still loves you. Of course he still has a plan for your life. Of course he hasn't abandoned you. Of course he's with you right now. Of course he sees your pain. Of course he sees your problems. Of course he's got a plan. And they rose at that very hour. Watch this. They walked away from the will of God, but they ran back to it. 14 miles in one day. The first seven, they walked away. But the last seven, they ran back. And now they're moving with God. Interesting that when they saw him, they were moving away from him, but now they can't see him, but they're moving towards him. On the road away from the will of God, they could see him, but they did not know him. But now that they're running back, they, they know him, but they cannot see him. And now suddenly they realize that the encounter they had with him on the road and in the room prepared them for a walk of faith in which they must walk by faith and not by sight. 
realizing that just like Moses at the burning bush has an encounter with God, but now he's got to go to Egypt where he's not going to see the fire of the burning bush and not going to hear the voice of God speaking from the bush. The encounter prepares you for a walk of faith when you must walk by faith and not by sight. They walked away because they weren't sure where they were going. But when they had the encounter with the living presence of God, they were able to run back because they knew exactly where they were supposed to be. You see, you've got to press beyond the Bible study to get to that place in the presence of Christ where suddenly, now I know where I'm going. Now I know what God wants me to do. Now I know this is my lion's den or this is my promised land or this is my Egypt or, or this is my fiery furnace. Now I know how to run towards the will of God, but you never get to that place if you don't first constrain him and press beyond the Bible study. One of the things we do often at the end of the service is open up the altar. Why do we open up the altar? It gives you an opportunity to press beyond the Bible study. It gives you an opportunity to say, okay, I've heard the word, I believe the word, but now I need something more. Now I need it to be real. When was the last time you went home after the service and pressed beyond the Bible study? I've heard the word, I believe the word, but now I need to turn on some worship music and get on my knees and, and say, abide with me. Now I need to constrain him. When was the last time you got in your car and say, now I'm going to constrain him? I'm telling you that if you don't take the time to seek the face of God and press beyond the Bible study, 2020 will pass you by and you're simply going to be slowly walking on your road to Emmaus the whole time. But if you press beyond the Bible study, if you constrain him, if you entreat him to abide, he's going to take you into the inner room. He's going to sit at the table with you. He's going to break the bread before you. And your eyes are going to be opened. And here's the beautiful thing. What he revealed to them at that table was not his plan for their lives, not his calling on their lives, not their destiny in him, not what great things they would accomplish in the world. What he revealed to them at that table was himself. And suddenly, now that I can see Jesus, I can see everything else. Now that I've encountered Jesus, I know where to go. Suddenly they knew where they were going. Why? Because they knew Jesus. And they were able to run. Some of us are pursuing the wrong thing. God, show me where to go. Instead, pursue Jesus himself. And if he opens your eyes to see him, you'll know exactly where he's calling you to run. Amen? Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. And I pray, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, that you would awaken within each and every one of our hearts 
the same desire that you put in the hearts of those two disciples on the road. The resolve to constrain you. To constrain you the way Jacob did that night when he put everything that he had on one side of the river and went to the other side by himself and wrestled with you all night long. He constrained you. He said, Lord, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he asked you, what is your name? That's what he wanted. What is your name? Show me who you are. Open my eyes that I might see Jesus. Lord, the resolve to constrain you and to seek your abiding presence it must transcend what happens in this room. It must even transcend what happens at this altar. Because, Lord, we so often come into this place and we seek you fervently for a moment. But then we go back to our busy lives and we let you walk on from Emmaus without ever having sat at the table with you. Father, we want to know that we're running in the right direction in 2020. We don't want to be walking to Emmaus. We want to be running back to our Jerusalem. But you've got to show us. But Father, we're not simply asking you to show us the way. We're asking you to show us you. Because at the end of it all, what we desire is more than a way. What we desire is you. Holy Spirit, at this moment, I pray you'd settle in on every heart and every soul. And that you would provoke the response that you desire from each and every one of our hearts. Lord, we've heard so many good words. But a good word is not enough. Jesus, you spoke to the Pharisees and said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you find words of eternal life, but they are the very scriptures which speak of me, yet you will not come to me that you may have life. You were entreating them to go beyond the Bible study, to come to you that they might have life. And today, I pray that you would press us beyond the Bible study that we might come to you that we might have life. Lord, our response is not before men, but before God. Look upon our hearts now. And visit us according to the response of our hearts. I pray it in Jesus' name. Now, what we're going to do here is maybe a little different than we typically do. I'm going to dismiss the, the service, and I'm going to open the altar at the same time. And as we open the altar, anyone who desires can come and constrain him in your own way. Maybe you have to go. We totally understand that. There's no judging or looking down on anyone who takes me up on the offer of the dismissal of the service. Because whether you seek him at the altar or on your own,
is between you and God. But my encouragement, my sincere encouragement to each and every one is that each and every day we would be intentional about constraining him and seeking the abiding of his presence that we might sit at the table with him and know him as he is. I bless you with the blessings of the Lord, with the blessings of heaven and earth, and with a deep and sincere desire for Jesus that transcends anything that you have experienced today. In Jesus' precious holy name I pray. Amen. God bless you.